It's great to see you guys. Uh, so glad you're here. Uh, I know a lot of you have been here before, and there's a number of you who haven't been here before, so we just want to say welcome. My name's uh, David. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, we just want this to be, uh, this is Outlet, if you don't know. Our goal is uh, that this would be a place that's an open kind of honest community that welcomes absolutely everybody. We know life is hard and life is a bit of a journey. There's people in different places in their journey uh, today, but we hope that you would find uh, encouragement wherever you are uh, in this community. So thanks for being here. Uh, We are in a series, I'm going to get right to it, uh, called The Cross and the Sea. One of the more inscrutable titles uh, probably of all times, The Cross and the Sea. But uh, the idea of The Cross and the Sea is a journey that we are going on to try to find a more Christ-like uh, God. We've bitten off some big theological uh, chunks in the series, if you guys have uh, missed the previous weeks. So if you haven't been here, we're going to just review a couple of the concepts that you have to understand if you want to kind of hang in the series a little bit. So uh, number one is this. These are big ideas that we've discussed already in the series. Number one is this. Humanity has grown in our understanding of how good uh, God has always been. We haven't always understood uh, how he is, but we've slowly come to understand it. Uh, And the reason that's important is actually if you read the Bible with the right eyes, you can see uh, how we are, uh, our understanding of God slowly kind of evolves. We haven't always understood who he is. Um, We used to make some silly guesses. You can actually see the psalmist in David, uh, uh, David in uh, Psalms. He writes, because he doesn't understand the devil. I don't know if you guys know this, but the devil is almost entirely a New Testament character Uh, in the Bible. We didn't always understand him. So uh, you can see the psalmist, he talks about, he blames the, the troubles of the world on the sea. He talks about when the sea rises up against us. He didn't understand. And uh, we can also see he talks a lot about and blames the God of the sea known as the Leviathan. He blames the Leviathan for bringing treachery uh, and trouble uh, to, his, uh, to his world. Luckily for us in 2015, uh, we have encountered the cross. The cross comes uh, and sets our thinking straight. Uh, And we see in the cross once and for all what God really looked like, even though we didn't understand uh, back in the day. This is a quote by a pastor I really love. It's kind of the quote of the series, if you will, by a guy by the name of Brian Zond. He writes this, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. You know, uh, Jesus didn't come uh, to change God's mind about us. Uh, God came, or Jesus came to change our mind about who God really was. But we didn't always understand, uh, again, and the reason that that's important for you as, uh, as a believer who's maybe journeying into uh, Scripture, the reason it's important is for you as you read the Bible, this perfect, infallible, beautiful book, what the Bible is doing is it's inviting you to come in and experience our evolving understanding of who God is. Uh, but Scripture Listen to me, scripture outside of time and place creates a monster God. If you don't understand where you are in the story, you read, and instead of God being uh, someone who uh, brings blessing, he's actually a God who curses us. Instead of a God who uh, cares for the orphans, you see a God who uh, creates orphans by killing uh, innocent people. Instead of a God who comforts uh, people who have been raped, he's a God who uh, causes people uh, to commit sexual crimes against each other. But really what you're seeing is you're seeing the brokenness of humanity struggle to understand who God really is. Luckily for us, we have the cross and he sets our uh, thinking straight. So that was the first point. The second one is this cruciform theology. It's a big, horrible phrase, cruciform theology. Cruciform just means cross-shaped. So we have cross-shaped theology. 
And what that means is everything else we understand about God comes under, not next to, Jesus on the cross. The thing, if we want to really understand God, there's one example that is supremely important that is uh, above all the other ideas, all the other things that we think about God. There's one thing that's more true uh, than that. So if you see... You see um, people thinking about all sorts of things about his anger and his wrath, what these, ultimately all the truths that you believe about God, those prove to be less true than what we see uh, Jesus when he dies uh, for his enemies. It stops us from doing what's really common uh, for humanity, which is using the Bible uh, to basically make God a God that reflects ourselves. You've ever uh, seen this, but angry people use the Bible to create an angry God. Political people use the Bible uh, to create a political God. It's really easy to do if you don't have one target in the Bible. Luckily, we do with cruciform theology. And the thing that truly shows us who God really is, is the Bible. Actually, the Bible confirms this. You might think it's an interesting idea, but uh, Hebrew uh, chapter 8, Paul talks about, and he says this, when Jesus came, the old covenant, which is a huge part of the Bible, huge part of the Old Testament, was actually rendered obsolete, You might have never thought that you would see the Bible calling a huge portion of its own literature obsolete. But this is what Paul does. But the way of relating and understanding to God that we see in the Old Testament is most certainly obsolete because Jesus came and proved to be a more true example of who God has always been. Okay, so uh, those are the two big ideas. Humanity has grown in our understanding of how good God has always been. Secondly, uh, cruciform theology, everything else that we understand about God comes under, not next to, Jesus on the cross. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible. I've got two sections. So the first section is not about the Bible yet. The second one will be. So section A, I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Satanism and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, If you're anything like me, uh, when I grew grew up, I used to think the epitome of uh, Satan worship were uh, Ouija boards, uh, Bloody Mary. Remember Bloody Mary in the bathroom? Classic. And of course, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and you might think that was just a, a kid idea, but that was actually pretty popular at the time that Dungeons and Dragons was probably one of the most perilous, horrific things that you could get into uh, as a person back in the day. I actually, you guys remember tracks? The little leaflets, I actually have a track. And not to disrespect anyone, but just for you to hopefully realize that we as Christianity has grown in the last 20 years. Uh, Thankfully, we're going to read a track together uh, that has to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Here we go. It is a little bit long, so I'm going to read it all, but just bear with me. Here we go. Okay, wizards, cast your spell. Okay, dungeon master, my spell of light blinds the monster. The, bl- uh, the thief, Blackleaf, did not find the poison trap, and I declare her dead, says the lady. No, not Blackleaf. No, no, I'm going to die. Don't make me quit the game. Please don't. Somebody save me. You can't do this. Marcy, get out of here. You're dead. You don't exist anymore. Make them real quick. Uh, Debbie, your cleric has been raised to the eighth level. I think it's time that you learn how to really cast spells. You mean you're going to teach me how to have the real power? Yes, you have the personality for it now. Uh, Okay, the intense occult training through, just the intense occult training, focus on that, through Dungeons and Dragons prepared Debbie to accept the invitation to enter a witch's coven. I brought Elfstar to become a priestess and witch. Welcome, Elfstar. Now you'll become a priestess of the craft and of the temple of Diana. Okay, 
Miss Frost, this is fantastic. This makes the game real. It's not a fantasy anymore. Last night I cast my first spell. This is real power. To which she says, I knew you were ready by the way you played the game, but this is just the beginning. There is so much more. Uh, what spell did you cast, Debbie? I used, the, I used the mind bondage spell on my father. He was trying to stop me from playing Dungeons and Dragons. What was the result? He just bought me $200 worth of new Dungeons and Dragons figures and manuals. It was great. I know it's pretty, pretty sweet. Later that week, hey, Debbie, Marcy's on the phone. She wants to talk to you. She's really upset. I can't. I'm fighting the zombie. Tell her I'll see her tonight. Uh, hi, Miss Anderson. Marcy wanted to see, uh, me to see her tonight. I'm glad you're here, Debbie. Marcy has shut herself in a room and won't come out. She hasn't been herself for weeks. I've been very worried. Ever since her character in that game got killed, it's as if part of, though a part of her died, maybe you can talk some sense into her. Here we go. No, this is her hanging herself. If, I, yeah, I know. I just thought she was dancing. No, Marcy, you didn't have to do that. See all the Dungeons and Dragons figures. It's my fault Blackleaf died. I can't face life alone, says Marcy, continuing on. Miss Frost, I can't get Marcy out of my mind. How could she do something like this? If I'd left the game, she'd be alive today. Get your priorities straight, Debbie. Your spiritual growth through the game is more important than some lousy loser's life. Uh, It would have happened sooner or later. Her spirit was too weak. But the law of our faith is that we can do anything we want as long as we harm no one. But now we've harmed Marcy. What have I gotten myself into? Don't be stupid, Debbie. Uh, I think you'd better let Elfstar take care of things. You're getting out of control. I don't want to be Elfstar anymore. I want to be Debbie. <sighs> don't worry, we're almost done. Hey, Debbie, what's wrong? I can help. Okay, so this is the nice guy. I thought I had all the answers, Mike, but now everything is falling apart. Sob. Debbie, I told you Jesus is the only answer. I've been praying and fasting for you. Why would you do that for me? Uh, Because I know what you're involved in. It's a spiritual warfare that you can't win without the Lord Jesus. What can I do? Come with me to a meeting this afternoon. The speaker came out of witchcraft, and he knows what you're up against. This afternoon, you who are involved in the occult think you have achieved power, but you have been trapped in a dungeon of bondage. The limited power you have uh, been given is only a bait to lure you to destruction. But Jesus came that you might have life and that more abundantly. Continuing on, if you want the Lord Jesus as your savior, come forward now. Oh God, I need help. My life's a mess. Help me. Continuing on, Debbie burned all of her occult material that night. Thank you, Lord, for setting me free. Uh, Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Check yes or no. Did you ask him to come into your heart and save you? Check yes or no. If you did, sign this so we can remember you. Uh, Remember when God saved your soul, date and name. Okay, so here's the thing. Clearly, uh, back in the day, hopefully, was that boring? Okay, okay. It felt a little long. I could have cut out a couple of slides. Okay, so here's the thing. Back in the day, it was very clear that one of the things that opposed our Christian faith and us, like, believing in God was this idea about Dungeons and Dragons and, and how it was like involved uh, in the occult. So I did a little bit of research for you guys, because I love you, uh, into Dungeons and Dragons. And so basically, here's the idea. I want, you to tell, I want to tell you a tiny bit about Dungeons and Dragons and what it really is. Uh, so basically, it's a game that you play with your friends. 
you can choose to be a character. You can choose to be a warrior. You can choose to be a rogue. You can choose to be a wizard. And then because of whoever you pick to be, you can find a little piece. So you can be one of these pieces. And so uh, just kind of like Monopoly, you are, are one of these pieces. Uh, they, have, of course, have a Lego version too. So you could be one of these Lego Dungeons and Dragons guys. And the idea is there's this board and you go through the board and maybe like you hit a wall or you hit a bad guy. Well, there's these big uh, dice You can see these big old dice with lots of numbers. You can roll them, and depending on what number you roll, uh, you would either uh, be able to defeat them, or maybe they defeated you, and then you would be out of the game uh, should your character die. It's a basic idea. So you might be thinking, well, how do you win in Dungeons & Dragons? Here you go. This is from their official uh, website. Every adventure contains its own set of victory conditions. Sometimes it's as simple as surviving the dungeon and escaping or defeating the boss villain at the heart of the Fortress of Evil. Other times you might have a specific goal to accomplish, like take the evil ring and toss it into the volcano or a specific monster to beat. If you achieve the objective, your group wins. Dungeons & Dragons is a cooperative game, not a competitive game. In other words, you don't compete against the other players and you don't win by beating them. The common denominator in every victory is fun. If you and the other players have fun, everyone wins at Dungeons & Dragons. So I would like to introduce you to the creators of Dungeons and Dragons, two guys, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. These are the creators of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Just a a quick bio on each of them. First, David Arneson. He's this first guy. Born October 1st, 1947. Attended University of Minnesota before uh, finding his passion as a board game designer. He married Frankie Ann Monroe in 1984. They had one daughter, Malia, and two grandchildren. Dave Arneson died on April 7th, 2009, after battling cancer for two years. According to his daughter, Malia, the biggest thing in my dad's world is he wanted people to have fun in life. I think we get distracted by the everyday things you have to do in life, and we forget to enjoy life and have fun. So clearly, this is intense occult uh, action here. Gary Gygax, the second one, he's, uh, here's his little bio. Born July 27th, 1938 in Chicago, a few blocks away from Wrigley Field. Due to uh, Gary being violently bullied as a small boy, his family moved to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Gary was a lover of games, and in 1973, he founded TSR Incorporated, a board game publishing company. Gary described himself, listen to this, Gary described himself as a Christian, but for much of his life, he hid his faith, citing fears that he would hurt the reputation of Christianity because of the mysterious moral panic that Dungeons & Dragons had caused in the Christian community. Gary later revealed that biblical stories are echoed in many Dungeons & Dragons concepts. Many Dungeons & Dragons spells are copies of biblical miracles. For example, almost all of uh, Elisha's miracles find their way into Dungeons & Dragons, as well as the tongues spell, which lets a character understand unknown languages. After suffering multiple strokes in 2004, uh, Gary was diagnosed with an inoperable ab, uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm and died the morning of March 4th, 2008 at his home in Lake Geneva at age 69. In one of his last interviews, he said this, I would like the world to remember me as the guy who really enjoyed playing games and sharing his knowledge and his fun pastimes with everybody else. So clearly what you have here is a classic case of Satanism. 
uh, hopefully you can see that that was like, there was nothing there. And all that to say is a really long example, but sometimes our assumptions, especially as Christians, are stupid. And, so, and sometimes the way that we think things are, are just like we can create worlds and like we live in them and we don't even realize that it has very little to nothing to do uh, in reality. And oftentimes we can be confronted with things that we used to believe as Christians, and we can see how crazy and horrible we've been, especially to innocent people trying to play uh, sweet board games. And listen, I know that it can be scary sometimes to question and uh, wonder, you know what I mean, and like honestly think about things that you haven't thought about before, but we can't live our lives as Christians from a place of fear. And if we want to be people who continue to grow uh, and, you know, and like reach the world instead of like Christianity continuing to decline, which is what it's done in the last 15 years. If we want to be people who can uh, like continue to survive and thrive as a community, we have to be people who are growing uh, and maturing and learning. So hopefully uh, for, for me, at just me as a pastor, I hope that if you would allow me to be this in your life, I can be a person who encourages in you the art of critical thinking. It's not offensive for you to be able to think about things and wonder about things, and see stuff, and think, maybe there's something here that I'm missing. Maybe there's a way that we've thought, and we were wrong, and we were dumb, uh, and we can continue uh, to grow. Okay, here you go. That was section A. Section B is this, uh, smoking fire pots. So write that down, smoking fire pots. Uh, scripture for you, Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, says this, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Can I get an amen? Just kidding. Uh, so let's pretend, let's pretend that you have a car and you're wanting to sell. Let's pretend that you have a 1984 light blue Volvo station wagon. You want to sell it because you're interested in getting one of those sweet new smart cars. So you put, it, you put it on Craigslist, and then you get, a, you get a phone call by a guy, and his name is Roger. He comes, and he wants to see your 1984 light blue uh, Volvo station wagon. So you say, absolutely, come on over. So he shows up, and he asks. He thinks the car is nice. He looks at it. He says, it's pretty, pretty sweet. Uh, can I drive it? And so you uh, think about it, and you say, sure. So you hand over the keys to Roger, and he gets in the car, and he drives. You sit on uh, the sidewalk. And after about 30 minutes or so, you're pretty confident that he's not coming back uh, with your car. You're pretty sure he's just taken it. So uh, here's the question to you tonight. What do you do? You call the police, right? And it's just amazing. Think about that. I think we would all have thought that what we do is the police. But just think about for a second, if you will, how amazing that is, that you call this phone number and there's people on the other line that you don't know. And within, you know, 10 minutes, there's people and they have like, you know, all these people that are looking for your car and, you know, posting pictures of your car and there's radio signals going out all on your behalf because you made this call. It's just interesting. So let's pretend that they find your car. Roger has been at a 7-Eleven. He was walking out. He bought some Funyuns and a Red Bull. So he's walking out. And so, uh, when they confront him about it, uh, when questioned, uh, Roger says this, I assumed it was fine because the nice man gave me the keys to the car, let's say. So let's say they go back to you and ask you about that. You would say something like, yeah, but he didn't give me the money for the car. 
So it's, and so when, he, when they go back and they ask Roger again, he says, man, I've never heard of that. That's a great idea. Uh, it's a weird story, right? It's a weird story because you understand how business works. You understand this idea about two people agreeing to do something, and if they don't do their part, there's consequences. There's, th- there's, there's a reason that there's these rules in place, and if you don't do those things, bad things happen. If you fail to do your part, and that's why, that's why in the world there's things like contracts, there's things like forms, there's things like you have to sign your name when you use your credit card, because you are committing to do your part in the agreement. When it comes to buying houses, when it comes to trading horses, when it comes to buying Funyuns at the gas station, you are entering into a very small commitment, a very small contract to do your part when they do their part. Two parties uh, agree. This is the way that agreements work. So let's say in the, in the particular case of uh, Roger, uh, I'll give you 26, or, or let's just say, here's another example. I'll give you $26 a year and you give me 12 issues of horse and hound. Something like that. It's like an agreement and it works because there's this law enforcement and like justice system behind it. Because like if you don't get your issues, well, there's something that you can do about that. And that's the reason that that works. If you don't pay for your Funyuns, we're going to call the police. So here's some questions for you uh, regarding uh, that. Uh, 4,000 years earlier, let's say, uh, who did you call when somebody didn't uphold their end of the deal? That's the question, Uh, which leads me to another question. Before law enforcement, insurance, car titles, wireless transfers, cashier's checks, and 911 numbers, how did people ever trust each other to uphold their end of the deal? Which leads me to another question, and it's this. How did business ever get done if there was no one to call? Uh, So I've greatly simplified it, but the way that they used to do it back in the day was they would enter into something called a covenant. It's a big word. It's a big Bible word. Basically, it's an oath. They're committing. It's you are committing. You're taking an oath to do your part. And so you might be thinking, well, how? How did they used to do covenants, especially in the Old Testament? Uh, well, here's five ways. This is like a five-step process if you were going to enter into a covenant uh, with me. Number one is you'd get an animal, cow, ram, goat, dove, something like that. That would be number one. Step number two, you'd chop it in half. Uh, long, you'd, you'd chop the thing uh, long ways uh, in half. Number three is you would lay the halves on uh, their sides like this and uh, forming an aisle down uh, the middle of the killed animals. Number four is this. You would stand side by side uh, and you'd basically state what you're planning to do. So you'd say, uh, in the case of the car, I will provide one 1984 light blue station wagon uh, that makes an ominous rattling noise uh, over 63 miles per hour. To which Roger would come back and he'd say, and I will pay $1,743 for the privilege of owning such a majestic vehicle. And lastly, step number five is you would walk between the animal halves and you would say something to the effect of, may I become like these animals if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant? And so you can kind of see in a barbaric way how this is pretty powerful because this is a culture without law enforcement, There was no number uh, to call. So this is what they had. By the way, this is where the phrase cut a deal comes from. Yeah, don't ever say that. 
Okay, which takes us, okay, so now you understand covenants. This brings us to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, In Genesis chapter 15, we see that God is making huge promises to Abraham. He's telling him about that he's going to have a tribe. This tribe is going to come from his offspring. It's going to be this brand new kind of tribe that instead of just searching for themselves and self-seeking, they're going to be a tribe that's a blessing uh, to all other uh, peoples. So Abraham uh, says, says this to God, hey, what can you give me since I remain childless? Is the question. And uh, this, it's interesting that this story in Genesis 15 uh, kind of kicks the Bible into gear. This is kind of like some of the first things that start the big story in the Bible, start uh, going. Basically, God tells Abram, hey, you're going to be the father of a nation. And then Abram doesn't have any kids for like a really, 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 really long time. The Bible is just kind of strange like that. Uh, But Abraham, it says this, that Abraham believes the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. We've talked about this before, but just picture with me, if you will. Back in the ancient world, people always understood that the gods were angry. And uh, this is a really ancient story, a very old story, where we see that God, this is a God who's actually planning good uh, for people. So it's, a, it's an even amazing thing that Abraham believed him. So God comes back and he says this, hey, I'm going to give you some land, Abram. And uh, Abraham uh, says this, hey, how can I know that I'll get this land? I need you, I need you to like somehow convince me that I'm going to get this land because I haven't had kids for like a really long time. Okay, so God says this, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. So Abraham says this in the word. Uh, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Just notice that God doesn't tell him to do this. He already knows. You know how he knows what to do with the animals? Because he's cutting a deal. He understands, like, this is the way that things worked. He's cutting a deal with God. And so while he's setting up, uh, the sun sets, uh, and in the dark, this is what the Bible says, a smoking fire pot, I have it here, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So then after this happens, God reaffirms his promises to Abram and the story ends. And that's, that's it. That's the end of it. So questions, wait, what? That's the end of the story? That's the whole, that's the whole stupid story? Yeah, that's the end of the story. Instead of these guys walking through, uh, a smoking fire pot passes through. Uh, question, what's the deal with the smoking fire pot? Well, uh, in Old Testament Bible times, this is actually a sign of God's presence. So God passes through the animals alone? You might be asking? Yes. But if God and Abraham are making a covenant, why doesn't Abraham pass, or why doesn't, uh, Abraham pass through the animals? Uh, wasn't that how you cut a deal? Both parties agreed to do their part. Uh, yes, it is. But in this story, God is the only one who passes through uh, the animals. So what's the point? The point is this. God commits to upholding both ends of the deal. Even if Abraham fails to do his part, God will still be faithful to him. And so this is early on. This is Genesis 15. This is very early in the Bible. Here what we see is this. We see uh, a story pointing out God's faithfulness even if we as his people are unfaithful. And you you can actually see this uh, go through a lot of the different covenants in the Bible. The Noahic covenant. There's a a covenant called the Noahic covenant. Uh, It's between God and, any guesses? Noah. Noah. 
we talked about it last week. It was with the rainbow where he was talking he wasn't going to destroy. And uh, this is what's interesting. That covenant, he makes a promise to, to not like destroy the And it wasn't dependent on his actions. It wasn't dependent on Noah's actions. And that story starts with, hey, look, you people are wicked, so God's going to kill all of you. And then the story ends with, hey, God has kindness, and it's not dependent on whether or not you're wicked. Another example is the Davidic covenant. No, we have a lot of big words, but this is uh, the idea of this two Davidic covenant that was between God and, any guesses? David. The idea there was that God promised David that the Messiah would come through uh, his line. He would come from his offspring. And they made it a little bit harder. David actually made it quite a bit harder when he had tons of infidelity and he totally went crazy and like started doing all sorts of weird stuff. But it was amazing because it wasn't, even when David was wicked, he didn't undo uh, the covenant. I remember thinking, uh, I remember hearing a story one time. There was this guy, I was listening to this preacher and he, he had two people come up. He had like a young guy and a young girl. And they said, I mean, he, he, he was talking about, I don't know, holiness or something. And so he had, he had a guy and a girl up on the stage and he said this to them. Okay, so let's pretend the two of you are getting married. And you guys are really excited. You really love each other. You can't wait. So let's say the, the husband, he comes to the wife or the fiance and says this. Hey, look, uh, I'm going to be super faithful to you and love you unconditionally. And I'm going to love only you except for every other weekend. And at that point, all bets are off. And then he asks the girl, tell me this, would you marry him if that was the deal? And the guy was like, no, of course I wouldn't marry him if that was the deal. And so then the guy says, the preacher says this, then what makes you think God is returning for an unfaithful bride? People were like, oh yeah, that's so great. And I was like, geez, I don't know, the Bible? How about the Bible? The Bible makes us think that God is returning to an unfaithful bride. That's the idea. That's what we're experiencing when we read uh, the Bible. Uh, A few examples for you. The book of Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is basically this. God is willing to maintain a relationship even when his spouse has become a vulgar prostitute. That's the idea of the book. How about Cain, the first murderer? Uh, God, he, was, he, was not, he was not faithful. He was unfaithful to God, yet God was faithful in his forgiveness to Cain. How about the woman caught in adultery where Jesus passes right over justice and goes directly uh, to grace? How about the prodigal son uh, who deserves nothing, who acts faithfully uh, unfaithful uh, to his father and he comes back and his father acts like it never happened? How about Jesus dying for our sins? The whole idea is us being unfaithful and his faithfulness being true no matter what. He is the one who holds up both ends of the deal. And it's really, it's freeing because I bet, I bet there's some people in here tonight that feel like, man, you're not holding up your end of the deal. That, you know, there's like, I'm not, I'm not doing good enough. I should be more. I should be doing more. I should be all this. Just know this, that his faithfulness is not dependent on your faithfulness. His faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness, is precisely the point. In fact, one of the principles of the Old Testament is this, I love uh, thinking about this, it helps me when I read the Old Testament, is the idea here is that people cannot maintain a covenant relationship with God on our own. We're eventually unfaithful, always. That's what you see uh, in the Old Testament, is that we as God's people are always unfaithful. 
consistently. There's not a story in the Bible that doesn't involve us doing the wrong thing and him coming back and forgiving us and loving us uh, anyways. I have, uh, this is what I think is a really cool, I was thinking about it. If someone were to say, David Eifert, I want you to, uh, in one sentence, I want you to summarize the, the like, story arc of the Bible. Tell me what the Bible is about. You got one sentence. This is what I would say. Uh, despite the continued unfaithfulness of his people, the one true God remains faithful even unto death and rescues us all. Our unfaithfulness and his faithfulness. Picture a God who completes both sides of the deal. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 13, Paul says this, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. Can I get the band to come up? This, there's this beautiful idea in the Bible that you see of new birth. And it's a really abused, weird idea that can like give people the heebie-jeebies sometimes. But one of the ideas of new birth is this, is that you're able to receive his faithfulness as if it's your own faithfulness. And, you know, people are talking about like a lot, there's a lot of talk about us, you know, answering for what we have done at the end of our lives. And there may be, there may be part of that, but I'll tell you this. When we come and we appear in front of God at the end, it's because of who Jesus is and what he did. And because of new birth, we're able to stand boldly. It's not like, oh, we're so ashamed because we could have done more. No, rebirth. There's a new life that we're continually, it's not just a one-time thing, it's a continual thing that we are consistently being remade into his image. We're consistently changing, and it's never about, it's never about us making the most of our opportunities, us having our part to play, you know, and us not holding up the deal. No, God plays both parts. God upholds both ends of the deal, and the idea for us is simply to just receive uh, what he's given us. And we're going to close uh, tonight with uh, communion. Communion is, is something that uh, we're instructed to do by Jesus. And the idea is just returning back to the feet of Jesus and laying down our unfaithfulness and just being honest and uh, receiving his forgiveness. So go ahead and pass it up. So tonight I talked a little bit about his faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. And I think it's important because I think there's a lot of people, even maybe some people uh, in this room tonight that you feel like you're bound uh, by your past. And you're bound uh, by your past mistakes. Uh, you're bound by your past unfaithfulness. And I think uh, if God were to say something to you tonight, it would just be this. Uh, receive his forgiveness and move on. Just let the past be, be what it was, you know? I, I was talking to a guy just earlier, well, later last week. And just this, there's this beautiful idea about, like, the, the things that you have in your own past, they're who make you who you are. And there's good things and there's bad things, but it's all a part of your unique, beautiful story. And, you know, you, you change things in the past and you stop being who you are right now. And so it, this idea, again, of rebirth, just, just see who you are right now and what you're supposed to do now and what you're supposed to do in the future. And you, you're able to look at the past because of Christ and his faithfulness 
It's not about you having done the right things or not doing the right things. It's just about you receiving him afresh uh, right now. And that's what, uh, that's what the table is. And so what we're going to do uh, tonight, I'm going to give you about one minute uh, to just take communion on your own. I, I don't want to pray for you. I want you to pray. I don't want to talk to God uh, for you. I want you to try to talk to him, even if it's uh, a new thing for you. But I give you about one minute, and then you can just eat the bread at your own time. You can drink from the cup at your own time. You got about one minute uh, to do it. But I had actually, um, I found this thing. It's like a really old, I think it came from a, I don't know, some an older church. I'm not sure. It's a really old thing. But it's basically like an invitation to the communion uh, table. And I thought it was really beautiful. Uh, so I'm just going to read it uh, to you. So here we go, and then I'll give you your one minute. Here we go. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. Take your one minute. tonight we just remember Jesus and we remember your faithfulness even amongst our unfaithfulness and we see your beauty 
And we remember that when we see Jesus, we see how you really are. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for being a God who would never leave us, who is our our ever-present help, just always there with us. So we say thank you for that, Lord. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen.